Hello, this is Congressman Jim Clyburn, and I would like to welcome you to my podcast, Clyburn Chronicles. I've always been a lover of history. I see this platform as a way to connect history with the politics of today. This is so important because as Judge Santiano once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Each episode, my guest and I will have a conversation about the lessons of the past, the politics of the present, and how we must learn from those experiences to help shape the future. Thank you for taking time to listen, and welcome to Clyburn Chronicles. This is Congressman Jim Clyburn with another edition of Clyburn Chronicles. As you know, we like to probe into historic facts with these uh, episodes, and today uh, is no exception. Uh, I have, as my guest today, uh, Senator Raphael Warnock, a native of Savannah, Georgia, just across the river from South Carolina, uh, and one who has just made history, uh, being the first person of color uh, to represent Georgia in the United States Senate. Uh, Senator Warnock uh, is a product of an HBCU, Morehouse College. He could have made a better HBCU choice in the <laughs> to South Carolina State, but uh, I'm going to join him uh, in a few weeks uh, as a degree holder uh, from Morehouse College. I will be there, I think, on the 15th uh, to get my Morehouse degree. So he wouldn't come to South Carolina State, so I'll go to Morehouse College. I want to thank him for being with us here today. And I just want to talk a little bit about, before we get into any real substance, a little bit about his journey from Savannah, Georgia, to now, the United States Capitol. Share with us just a little bit about what that journey has been like. Well, thank you so very much, uh, Whip Clyburn, it's wonderful to be here with you, to be a part of the Clyburn Chronicles. And uh, I look forward to uh, seeing you become a Morehouse man uh, <laughs> in just a few weeks. Finally, you have arrived, sir. You have arrived. It, it's great to be here. Uh, you know, I, I have the honor of representing the people of Georgia in the United States Senate. It is uh, a testament to the strength of an idea called America. For all of our country's challenges, um, in no other place on the planet is my story possible. A kid who grew up in public housing, one of 12 children, I'm number 11, and the first college graduate in my family. The year I went to Morehouse College, the tuition room and board at Morehouse was about equal to my parents' income. 
but somehow uh, through the grace of God and the help of many others and good public policy. I was able to graduate four years later uh, because of low interest student loans and Pell Grants, which is why right now I'm fighting in the United States Senate and you and I and others are trying to push the president to do student debt relief. Uh, but I went on, graduated, uh, went on to, and I went to Morehouse, be, honestly, because that's where Dr. King went. I was born a year after his death and early in my life, even as a kid, Dr. King's voice and his moral witness as a preacher, both of my parents are preachers, but his represented a kind of social justice preaching that absolutely captivated my imagination. And I wanted to go where Dr. King had trained. Little did I know that I'd become the pastor of the church where he served, and from there, now serving in the United States Senate. Well, thank you very much for that. Uh, you know, I want you to say a little bit more about that. I had an experience several years ago, um, as many people know, uh, one of our great uh, astronauts lost his life uh, in the Challenger. Uh, and Ron McNair uh, visited with me just a couple of days before that fateful flight. He said to me on that occasion uh, that people always introduce him as this PhD from MIT. And he said to me, but that's not what made me who I am today. He said, those four years I spent on the campus of North Carolina A&T, where I had teachers with similar backgrounds and experiences that I had growing up in Little Lake City, South Carolina, a tobacco town where I was not able to use the library. He said to me that that's what made it all possible. And I know that you left Morehouse. You went on to get a terminal degree before you uh, landed at Ebenezer Baptist Church. Would you feel the same about Morehouse? Oh, no question. I went on to get a couple of master's degrees and although politicians don't like to admit it, I, I, I do have a PhD in systematic theology, uh, trained in New York at Union Theological Seminary. But yeah, something special happened on the campus of, of that college. Uh, this past Sunday, I preached at the Friendship Baptist Church in Atlanta. I mentioned that because Morehouse actually started in Augusta. And when it moved to Atlanta, its classes were held in the basement of Friendship Baptist Church. Spelman College, our sister college right across the street, was founded in 1881 at Friendship Baptist Church. Our churches and historically black colleges and universities, education and faith have been the Tigris and the Euphrates, the twin rivers in our work uh, towards creating a beloved community that embraces all of us, where we all have opportunity and justice and access to the American dream. And absolutely being on that campus where Dr. King's statue stands inspired me. It was training not only of the head, but a tuning of the heart. The idea that you ought to make your education work uh, for others, especially for the least of these. And um, just being on that campus 
Uh, it wasn't simply the instruction. There's something about the atmosphere of that uh, that, that left me with a, a, a deep sense of calling uh, and moral responsibility that I've tried to live in. The country owes a debt of gratitude to our HBCUs. These are schools that have been punching way above their weight, generation after generation after generation. Black colleges and universities have been doing so much for so many people for so long with so very little resources that I think uh, people just expect them to continue to do this. Now that I'm in the Senate and I'm happy and glad that I'm able to partner with you and others like Alma Adams uh, who are pushing to make sure that our HBCUs get the resources that they need and that they deserve. And it's not only good for black colleges or the students on those campuses. When you think about the future of our country, uh, the future of our country is what's at stake. We've got to make sure that as we think about the ability of America to compete on a global stage, as we think about the importance of STEM and technology, we've got to make sure these schools have their resources. George Washington Carver came out of Tuskegee University, and here he is, this brilliant scientist, able to do what we all learned in elementary school, the things he did with a peanut and a potato. It's a amazing when you think about his agricultural scientific mind. But we now live in the 21st century. And no matter how brilliant the student is, in a technological communication digital world, you're going to have to have resources. You're going to have to have labs. You're going to have to have what's needed um, to prepare our children uh, so that they can compete. We, we don't have a single um, R1 research university among our HBCUs. And as a member of the Commerce Committee, that's one of the things I'm focused on. We, we ought to have at least one HBCU uh, that is a tier one research university. We certainly have the intellectual capital. We just need some capital. You're exactly right about that. And we're going to make sure uh, that in the not too distant future, uh, that is one shortcoming uh, that we do something about. Uh, it most especially since Tuskegee plus many of these others, uh, like South Carolina State for that matter, yep. Fort Valley there in, in Georgia. Morehouse School of Medicine and Fort yeah. Valley, absolutely. That's yeah, right. they, were, uh, they were found uh, because of agricultural research. Right. This is what the 1890 schools are all about. Uh, right. So we're going to do the same thing for these schools that we did uh, for uh, for broadband, when we decided, you and I talked about this, and I told you we're going to have to do the same thing for the information highway that we do for the interstate highway when it comes to uh, uh, infrastructure. And we were successful with that, and I'm sure we're going to be uh, successful uh, with this effort uh, with these institutions also. Now, before we get too far, I've got to say, now, you know, I met Martin Luther King Jr on Morehouse campus myself uh, in October 1960. Never shall forget the month uh, or even the date, October 15, 1960, long before you were born, uh, is when I met King and John Lewis the same weekend on that campus. Wow. You and I shared Dr. Benny Mays, uh, who was a South Carolinian and became King's mentor. And I'm so uh, into history, I can't help uh, but bring these things out when I 
have these podcasts, but we're here today to talk about another interest of yours, and that is making healthcare accessible and affordable uh, for all. And this is uh, Medicaid Awareness Month, uh, and millions of people are benefiting from Medicaid. Now, we got to make sure that people understand there's a difference in Medicare. Medicare is determined by the calendar. Your age right. makes you eligible for Medicare. Right. Medicaid is determined by your status, your wealth, or the lack thereof. It is determined by income, Medicaid. So now Medicaid uh, is not, uh, has not been expanded in South Carolina or in Georgia. When we passed the Affordable Care Act, uh, we intended for it to cover everybody, but the court decision, the Supreme Court looked at it and decided to do something in making it constitutional uh, that gave the states the right whether or not to expand certain parts of it. And the state of Georgia did not take advantage of that. State of South Carolina didn't. And there were uh, at least 10 other states that didn't do it. You have been working very hard on trying to get this coverage gap done. Uh, I've been working in the Senate, uh, and we know that the key to it is there in the Senate. Share uh, with my listeners what it is that you're doing, what you think needs to be done in order to make uh, those eligible for Medicaid expansion. If we don't get it with Medicaid expansion, how do we get it? Well, thank you for that, uh, Brother Clyburn, and Thank you for the ways in which you continue to highlight this important issue around healthcare. Here is where I start. Healthcare is a human right. And it is certainly something the wealthiest nation on the planet can and ought to provide for all of its citizens. And so I've long been in the fight uh, for healthcare uh, when I was pastoring and I continue to lead up Ebenezer Baptist Church, but when you all were very engaged uh, during the Obama administration and passing the Affordable Care Act, I was talking about it from my pulpit and reminding Christians in particular that we preach and sing every Sunday in honor of a preacher who spent most of his ministry healing the sick, even those with pre-existing conditions. That's what leprosy was in those days, a pre-existing condition. And so health care for me is a moral issue. Um, and the Affordable Care Act has been on the books now for 10 years. And imagine, as you think about the fact that we have 12 states, including Georgia and South Carolina, that have refused to expand Medicaid. And I guess we should slow down here a moment. Uh, those of us who do this work, I try to be conscious of the ways in which, you know, we want to make sure that people know exactly what we're talking about. Um, there's Medicaid in the conventional sense, but Medicaid expansion is the means through which we employ, the, the means through which we provide coverage to, to people who are not uh, poor enough to get conventional Medicaid, 
but they can't really afford these private health insurance plans either. They're in the gap, and it's mainly the working poor. And it's the Medicaid expansion, that's the provision in the Affordable Care Act that makes sure that these people, particularly the working poor, people who work every day and still can't afford basic health care, it is the way that they get covered. And as you pointed out, we've had these states, 12 of them still, that have refused to expand Medicaid. And so in the case of Georgia, uh, that means we have 646,000 Georgians who are in the coverage gap. And so um, this is something that I've been engaged in fighting for for years. Can you imagine having Social Security in just 48, in, in just 38 states? Can you imagine having Medicare in 38 states instead of 50? And that's the case right now with Medicaid expansion, which is a part of the Affordable Care Act. We have it in 38 states. If healthcare is a human right, it's a human right in every state. And so, first of all, as an activist, I've been fighting for years to get Georgia to expand Medicaid in the spirit of Dr. King. I've gotten arrested a couple of times in acts of civil disobedience pushing this issue both at the state capitol in Georgia and here at the U.S. Capitol. And so when I got elected uh, to the United States Senate in 2020, um, and Georgia, because Georgia delivered the majority to the Democrats, I insisted inside of my caucus that as we passed that American Rescue Plan, we had to do something to help the states that are, or to help the people in those states that have refused to expand Medicaid. So we put a lot of resources, as you know, in the American Rescue Plan to incentivize states like Georgia and South Carolina to expand Medicaid. It already didn't make sense for them to do it. Economically, it's a hit on the states for them not to do it, but we made it even sweeter. We put billions of dollars of incentives to try to get South Carolina to, to try to coax Georgia to expand Medicaid. And as you know, uh, they continue to dig in their heels. And so after that didn't work, um, I put forward something called the Medicaid Saves Lives Act, um, which would have been a part of the bill that uh, we used to call Build Back Better. And of course that bill has failed and we haven't, weren't able to pass it. But the Medicaid Saves Lives Act was a provision that I uh, wrote that would have provided a Medicaid-like program for people who live in states like South Carolina and Georgia that have refused to expand Medicaid. And um, so we weren't able to, to get Bill Back Better passed, but this is work that I'll continue to do. I remain focused on it uh, because I don't think that there's anything more basic and important uh, than healthcare. Well, thank you very much for that. And you know, I've just been handed a note uh, telling me that um, Brown v. Board of Education expansion is about to come to the floor and it's my bill, I need to go there. But before we go, I want you to take just a couple of minutes to tell our listeners, uh, uh, listeners a little bit about uh, your efforts, uh, along with uh, others of us, uh, to cap the cost of insulin. Yep. Uh, my late wife fought diabetes for 25 years. Hmm. Uh, it took her life. Uh, and I saw her insulin bill on several occasions. It ran anywhere from $1,200 to $1,600 a month, mm. per month. She was a full shot a day diabetic at one time. Insulin has been around for more than 100 years. Right. And there's no reason 
uh, we've done the research and you've done great work. And we know that the people who make insulin can make money if it's only $35 a month. And that's what we're trying to cap. Yeah. Tell our listeners what you're doing with that. Uh, yeah. yeah, so so in memory of your, your beloved wife and in support of the many people who are struggling with diabetes today, we've got to cap the cost of insulin. And uh, so I have a bill that will exact, do exactly that. We will cap people's out-of-pocket costs to no more than $35 per month. Uh, we ought to be able to get this done. A reporter was just asking me about this a few minutes ago, saying, can we get a bipartisan bill done? We ought to be able to get one done. Uh, insulin is already capped in some 20 states, even in some red states like Oklahoma and Utah. Uh, so we ought to cap it, and we're going to keep focused on this. Uh, one in $4 in our healthcare system is spent on people with diabetes. And so when we help people to manage their diabetes, not only do we help them, I think we do go a long way with controlling costs in our larger healthcare system. When you think about amputations, when you think about cardiovascular disease, kidney failure, a whole range of issues connected very often to the management of diabetes. This is the smart thing to do, it's the right thing to do. And I hope you can get it done this work period. Well, thank you very much for that. And uh, uh, let me say to my listeners, uh, we are truncating today because of our duties uh, in the House and the Senate. But this has been another edition of Clyburn Chronicles. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clyburn Chronicles. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a comment. And don't forget to subscribe to my show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn.